I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal at Navigator's Calgary office. And I'm Lauren Olheiser, a partner with Galing WLG in Calgary. Welcome to the third episode of the Energy Exchange, a podcast where Jason and I explore the energy transition in Canada and what it means for our industries, our climate change goals, and for our future. We have a very interesting guest joining us for this episode as we explore international environmental litigation. On the 26th of May, 2021, the Hague District Court ordered Royal Dutch Shell PLC to cut its CO2 emissions by 45% in 2030 compared to its CO2 emission levels in 2019. This unprecedented ruling may trigger legal actions against other companies in and maybe even outside the Netherlands. We've asked Leone Klapvik, partner and lawyer at Van Duren, a law firm in the Netherlands, to join us and shed light on this ruling and what it means for Europe. Leone advises network operators, supply and production companies in the regulated sector and companies in the chemical and industrial sectors, as well as governments. She has broad experience in solving problems in the field of regulated, that is heat, electricity, drinking water, and gas, as well as non-regulated, primarily CO2 and fuels, utility space. So thanks, Leone, for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. And I thought, why don't we start with getting the sort of setting the table and getting some background in play for people that might not have studied the decision that's been issued from the court in the Netherlands and how it, um, you know, sort of what its general provenance is and, and its impacts. Let's just start at the beginning, which is sort of what's the ruling and, and what has it meant at this stage? What, what can you tell us or inform us about in regards to uh, where we are today? Yeah, thank you, Lauren. I will explain uh, the judgment a bit uh, a bit more, and then uh, I'll answer your question. Well, in this uh, Shell case, uh, seven different environmental organizations started a public interest litigation case against Shell, and uh, the court eventually ordered that Shell has to cut its emissions with 45% in 2030 compared to 2090. So that's a difference because we used to see a cut, uh, we used to see 1990 as a reference, but now it's 2090. So amongst other things, the court took into consideration that Shell is responsible for a significant amount of CO2 emissions all over the world. And these emissions exceed the CO2 emissions of many countries, such as the Netherlands. And climate change will have serious and irreversible consequences for the Netherlands, and especially the Wadden region. That's a region in the north of the Netherlands, a, a small group of islands with a lot of uh, nature below sea level, and that's a protected area in the Netherlands. And although human rights cannot be invoked uh, by the organization uh, against Shell directly, the court ruled that these human rights do play a part in coloring the standard of care that Shell has to take into account. And the relevant human rights are, according to the uh, court, the right to life and the right to respect public life and private life. So from the Urgenda case, that was a big, uh, that was the first climate case in the Netherlands in 2015. It can be derived that these human rights also grant protection against climate change. So there's a big list of arguments. You want me to continue? because well, there's a... And before I let Jason in with some policy things, there are a couple kind of what I would consider sort of fundamental legal issues I wanted to make sure I understood. So one is, what is the standard that Shell's required to comply with? Is it a best effort standard in respect of meeting these reductions in emissions to a 2019 
fixed date. Is that a best effort standard? I think adequate action is is a phrase I've seen in trying to read some of the background on this. If you could help us with the standard and also what's the consequence of failing to meet the, the obligation? Are damages paid? And if so, to who? I'm quite curious in those kind of fundamental legal principles. Yeah, it is a best effort. So it's not a result obligation. It is a best effort. And as far as damages are concerned, uh, well, if Shell d- doesn't meet these uh, these standards, it's not that they they can be held liable directly for damages. So that's a big question mark thus far. And until now, the court has only imposed the obligation to reduce the emissions, uh, but there's no there's no damages um, involved once Shell does not meet those obligations. So I think if they would not meet these obligations, uh, the Friends of the Environment have to go to court again in order to get damages compensated. So that's an important thing to be um, cognizant of, is that this is kind of phase one of the litigation is getting these obligations placed on Shell and how it conducts its business. And then depending on how that unfolds, there would be a sort of a second phase, more of the, the damages and, and compliance phase is the way I'm thinking about it. And I- am I right that this is currently under appeal by Shell or do you have any updates as to its um, uh, status yeah. in the courts? Yeah, you're right. It's under appeal, but there's no update because that's not public information if you're not one of the parties involved. So we don't know what the exact status of the appeal is. As far as policy and this sort of I might, I'll get out of your road in a second here, Jason. Uh, as far as policy, uh, I, the basis of the action brought by the litigants is uh, sort of a human rights. And here, a term we would use frequently is ESG or environmental social governance being the trigger. And I understand that there's some similarities in the Netherlands and Canada in respect of environmental or emissions um, regulation. We have a carbon tax, we have uh, emissions caps. Those would seem to be sufficient, at least at this stage, for monitoring some of our environmental performance. But if you can maybe, again, for, for listeners that don't have the background in comparing and contrasting what the what the existence of climate regulation looks like in the Netherlands, and that may inform or if you have thoughts about why this additional step of taking litigation against Shell was necessary or, or viewed to be necessary by the litigants in this case. Yeah, we do, uh, like I said, Lauren, we do have emission cap as well. We have the EU ATS emission system, and we also have a and then we have also have a tax on uh, products that are imported outside of the EU. So we do have similar systems in place. But the thing is with the emission trading system that you are allowed to, um, you know, to, to emit a certain amount of greenhouse gas and you get emission rights for that. Uh, but the thing with this shell case is that the claimants uh, said that that was not enough, that the emissions, the emission caps was not enough and that there, you have to do more to cut your emissions. So the EU system only covers part of your emission. And if you emis- emit more, you can just buy the rights. And that's the thing, even though the prices are skyrocketing for the emission rights at the moment, still companies are able to buy the rights instead of taking measures to reduce the CO2 emissions. So this was, a, I think, a clear statement of the court that um, the EU uh, emission trading system is not sufficient and also that the tax is not sufficient and that more measures have to be taken in order to ensure that the emissions are being cut down and are in compliance with the Paris agreement in the end. So, 
Leone, it's, uh, you know, a lot of Canadians would be very familiar with Shell. Uh, they have a lot of gas stations, a lot of oil production uh, and gas production in, in the country, in, in Canada, but less familiar with this actual Dutch court ruling. But one of the things that jumped out to me, and I was just wondering if the court addressed this, was the notion that non-binding international agreements can now form the basis of binding obligations on, on companies. Uh, and I just wonder how the court addressed that. Well, in a very, um, they did that by just deciding that, you know, they said even though there's no, uh, they can't be involved directly, but they are important rights and they color the standard of care that Chill has to take into account in conducting its business. So it's sort of a more indirect way of incorporating those principles in Chill's business conduct. So probably the same in Canada, there's no direct um, possibility to you know to invoke these rights but it was more of an indirect way and also the court that was interesting because they said the UN guiding principles also uh, mean that companies have responsibility to cut their submission and to come to cut their emissions and um, that companies have uh, the obligation to respect these human rights so in a way it's very new and very uh, yeah it, it was not it was very unexpected in a way to us court indeed and then how did they how did the court deal with what we call scope three emissions so you know those emissions that are are, are ultimately borne out by people using their cars or generating electricity for use in their da daily life as opposed to scope one which would look at at production so did this ruling apply responsibility to the uh, to the oil producers on scope three emissions yeah, definitely. It said that Shell has to make a corporate policy to also try to cut these emissions and to influence cutting these emissions as much as possible as well. I find that fascinating, uh, Lauren and Leone, that, that we have non-binding international agreements that are in place and then also those scope three, which are, are really kind of, uh, a lot of the producers would say are beyond their capability of, of doing it. But uh, it's a fascinating piece of, of, of how this might, might roll out going forward. Yeah, and yeah. I and I am curious, taking from that exact point, the now what of this, uh, because I think that's like when I saw this and I've read a little bit about this. That's uh, the kind of question that's left in my mind is, well, now what? Where where do we go? I wonder, Leone, if you've got kind of reaction or feedback from other organizations and industries in the Netherlands that you know they may see this, particularly if. Scope three emissions are being attributed to Shell. You know, what kind of reaction has this generally got? I, I'm certain that there are supporters, and I'm certain there are just detractors. But I'm kind of most interested in, in commercial actors and businesses and uh, what they what you might have heard uh, in regards to their view on this decision. Yeah, we definitely did hear a lot, though I think the road was paved in the Urgenda case in a way, because in, in that case, the uh, state of the Netherlands was held liable to comply with the Paris Agreement to also cut, uh, to impose emission reduction-reducing uh, measures. So I think in that way, it was not new. Shell was, you know, was the first company, obviously, that got that obligation, but the, the road was paved, as I said. And um, so there's been a lot of talks on this topic in the public opinion, uh, but I do think this um, this judgment changed the public opinion in a way as well. I mean, the summers are getting warmer in the Netherlands, warmer and warmer. So it's in a way, it's difficult to deny climate change, I think. And also now, you know, cutting the emissions also means uh, changing to other energy, uh, to other energy, to new energy, green energy. So to green hydrogen, for example, 
I think also between uh, Russia and Ukraine, where we depend on Russian gas for uh, for a large part of our energy uh, supply, it also is sort of it gives momentum for for this court case in a way as well, because this court case means that businesses have to switch to other ways of of, of using and making energy to green hydrogen, for example. So I think it, the time is right for a case like this, and also. Um, you see, in Europe, there's been more cases. In France, uh, there has have been some climate cases. In Germany, so I think it, the time is there to, you know, I think it's not so much about the law anymore, but it's also about public opinion and people wanting to, wanting to change. And people, I mean, the generation after me, the younger generation, they're all about climate change. And so I think the judge ruled this, and the law, the the law wasn't ready yet. But the judge and the public opinion is. So I think this is a big instigator for all these changes that we might also see in law. Putting aside public opinion, which is actually the realm I deal with it all the time, so so uh, it's funny for me to say that. But I just want to build off your last comment, Sioni. When this judgment came out almost a year ago, it's about ten months old now. The world was a very different place, and you referenced the key reason why with Russia and Ukraine, and, and the implications. Putting aside the human rights for a moment, you can never put aside human rights, of course, and some of the some of the tragedy that's going on over there. But looking at the practical implications from an energy standpoint, you know, the question always comes about is what if there's nothing to replace? We know these technology exists. I was at Sarah Week last week. There's great discussion around hydrogen. There's great discussion around um, how to lower emissions through CC, uh, CCUS or CCS uh, on the front. Did, did the judgment at all address sort of what if there was nothing to replace or is it just a matter of producers have to reduce the uh, reduce their, their emissions? It's just that there was nothing in the judgment uh, on replacement measures or on possible replacement measures. So, no, it was very... Uh, very, I think it was the, the scope was just to cut down the emissions and not how to cut down the emissions. So, uh, nothing said what, uh, on that. The judge said North nothing and, about that. Sorry. <laughs> in North America, we call that the elephant in the room that nobody's talking about the how. Everybody knows that we need to get there, but it's the how. Did, uh, do you think this will apply to, to other industries? Uh, you know, we think of things like concrete, which, which of course is being used around the world. It's fundamental to, to how we build, uh, whether that be infrastructure or housing or whatever the case may be, but it's also can be very, uh, very emissions intensive. We're seeing some progress. Lafarge has done some good work in this space, but do you anticipate or did the court address how this might apply to other industries beyond the production? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, the court didn't, but obviously the friends of the climate sent, sent a letter to 29 other companies um, and there was a pension fund and other companies as well, like the large consumers of energy, that they uh, have to um, make a climate plan or else. So, well, it was not so much or else. They just got an invitation from the Friends of the, Cl- Friends of the Earth, I think they call themselves, to make a climate plan and to change, uh, to cut their emissions as well. So um, that's something that's happening. And recently on a European level, the European Commission proposed a directive on corporate sustainability due diligence, that is so-called Directive on Mandatory Human Rights and Environmental Due Diligence, the MRET, we call it. It's very difficult to pronounce. And this directive has not been... Um, adopted yet, but it would establish far-reaching due diligence requirements for large EU companies and also for mid-sized EU companies in high-impact sectors, such as the concrete uh, producers, for example. And the obligations would have to be transposed in the laws of each member state. And they also contain obligations with respect to these human rights. And 
actually to cut down emissions, but it's a broader scope and also ident identifying actual and potential adverse impact on human rights, for example. So I think time is there for change, I think, and only cutting emissions is part of this, but also on a European level, we see this movement where things are starting to be laid down as a policy. So I think there will be some... Uh, I think there will be some laws, with, with, you know, in time that will also force companies to take uh, measures. Sort of my observations, and I'm curious if if you um, see something similar or, or generally agree or disagree with. You know, your comment about the court has indicated that change needs to be made, but they haven't commented on how. I think that's very understandable why a court wouldn't indicate anything about how in a way and, yeah. and that uh, that probably aligns quite closely I would agree from where I stand uh, in regards to public opinion which is they want change and they're not particularly uh, prescriptive as to the how clean is is how and how what clean specifically means is sort of up to the producers but it's the it's the investors to me that are the the ones who kind of have the most say in this, which is if we decide, you know, hydrogen seems to have a, a bit of um, lift behind it, uh, or if it's, you know, further advancement in solar and wind, you know, whatever it is, it's fundamentally got to come down to the people that, that are the investors and that provide the financing. And this has uh, significant cost impacts because that's how these investment decisions are made. And so I gather though that the directive of how to go about making this transition isn't specified by anybody in particular. They just want it better than it used to be. The um, support for increased costs and the associated costs uh, related to this investment is something that's kind of broadly understood or accepted, uh, notwithstanding an inflationary environment we live in. But but I get the impression that people are, you know, they're kind of willing to pay the price and and back this up. But I, you know, the world keeps changing very rapidly in this, this day and age, but I don't know if you've got any kind of uh, read on that, if that's something that you're, you know, can sense from the papers or the people you talk to uh, in the Netherlands about, you know, people understanding there's going to be a significant cost of the transition, but that people are kind of willing to pay those costs. Well, the, the thing in the Netherlands, they always say like the transition has to be affordable. The energy transition has to be affordable and anyone has, has to be able to, to go along and don't has, people should not pay too much. And now with the current uh, natural gas prices, I mean, it's almost um, cheaper to just go all electric because all electric, for example, used to be very expensive for quite some time. So in a way, I think uh, time is on our hands and time is helping because the gas prices are rising. And um, and another thing is that, um, as you might know, we just got a new uh, government after the elections. It took us quite some time to uh, to form a new uh, new government. But now we also have a minister of climate and energy and policy, and he um, he explained that we're going to have a climate fund with uh, 30 billion for the energy transition. So a lot of big investments for infrastructure and everything. Or it can be paid from that energy fund. And of course, that's the basis for a transition. So maybe also some big uh, uh, city heating districts can be uh, built uh, with this climate fund. And of, obviously, if you switch from natural gas to district heat, it's not so expensive because, yeah, you do have to take some measures, but it would not cost that much. So, I mean, for the civilians, it's there's chances of the energy transition not being too expensive for them, I think, at the moment. That's what I want to jump into here a little bit, because it seems like a lot of this decision was based on human rights. And, and you've talked about the price of, of energy going up as we go through this transition. And no doubt, 
you know, there is going to be a period of difficulties, especially for, for developing nations. But when I listen to we talk about human rights, how does the court balance or how do you think this decision is going to impact balancing a human rights to to heat their home, to cook their food, to to make a living vis-a-vis uh, this as we go from transition? Because we know a lot of the technologies are out there but they're just not at commercial scale and not deployable yet. So how do we bridge those human rights uh, in the interim, assuming we're able to get there? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have the answer yet. But I mean, you all, I mean, with like the, this big fund, you hope that, you know, some, um, I think a lot will be spent on the innovative technologies. So to uh, upscale those. And um, yeah, you also have a right, you know, to be able to pay your energy bill. So I fully agree. But I think it's all about, it's all about time. And, and we just have to wait, I think. But to me, it's inevitable. And yeah, in a way, there will be a clash maybe of human rights because energy might become more expensive. But for example, a brand uh, in Europe, they say prices are going to increase, uh, are going to quadruple because of the, you know, the current situation. So in in a way, you never you never know uh, what's going to happen. There will always be a conflict of human rights. But I think it is in- inevitable to, uh, you know, to go through these changes. And yes, it will cost money, I think. Well, this is our listeners have heard me say this before, right? It doesn't just Im- impact the price of the pump. That applies then to the farmers, to those that are shipping, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, often we think a loaf of bread comes from the store, but in fact, it, it originates in the field and there's a long way to go before it gets to, to, to you and I. So it's going to be interesting to see that how that comes out. I think the other big challenge that's going to be interesting to watch is, of course, the, there's 20 countries that do the majority of the emissions. So then when we talk about human rights, how does that impact the rest of the world? Did the, t- did the Dutch court look at this primarily from a, uh, a Dutch standpoint, or did they look at it from an international standpoint beyond the uh, beyond the, the actual international agreements? No, just a Dutch standpoint, but at the same time, they said that Shell has to incorporate this policy through its whole group, uh, so also through its suppliers. So it is from a Dutch perspective, but I mean, it has a broad uh, broad impact, and it's, uh, it goes along the whole Shell group, so... Yeah, and that was the. I think that's the most interesting thing about that because because it was Shell, it had those international implications, and 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 it's why we're talking to you about this today because we, as we unpack this. Yeah, there's there's a piece of this like on the cost part because I'm quite interested in that in regards to. I mean, there's a phrase I don't know if used uh, in the Netherlands, but certainly around here, which is the cure to high energy prices is high energy prices which happens to also be the cure for low energy prices is low energy prices. <laughs> the, the, the idea being that if it's, if it's high, people are going to start switching away from it and that will bring the price down naturally. If the price is low, people will stop investing in it. And that failure to invest in it, which I would say is a thing that we've seen since 2014, roughly, is what can create a, a price spike or a rise in prices increase. And that those aren't the only variables, but they're variables. It would seem to me that we're very much in a in a spot now where that's the cure to low energy prices is low energy prices being it's a call for more uh, for a change or a reduction in investment, which will eventually lead to a supply demand imbalance, getting more imbalance and an increase in prices. But I think if one wants to look at it as the glass being half full as high energy prices, not only call in more energy investment from traditional energy sources, but certainly supports any kind of energy investment. And I've said in a couple of our episodes that Jason and I have had uh, about an all of the above strategy, which is a thing that's been discussed for a long time. When we're seeing energy prices that we're seeing nowadays and what they 
look like for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think the comment you used is that there's a, a real support for or uh, interest in uh, starting to fund the energy transition in a serious way. I mean, this all supports that, which is if you're if you thought your your clean tech energy project was you know cost prohibitive uh, six months ago. Uh, using the math that was on the table then, that might have been the case, but we are in a very different environment now. And yeah. so it's, to my mind, and I, and I am an all of the above person when it comes to energy development, I, I'm a sort of let's, let's advance this. But I certainly think that the table is set for those who want to pick and choose from where they want to make their energy investments. And if they want to do it in a, in a traditional fossil fuel energy basis, or if they want to do it with, with green, or they want to do some of the combinations that we've seen or are seeing in respect of things like here in Alberta, where blue hydrogen is a significantly um, discussed and, and I think sort of area that's ripe for, for investment. So as I've said before, hopefully I'm not overly optimistic about what the present day looks like, but this does seem to be sort of a really um, well-advanced scenario that we're living in right now that people recognize that though there's been a lot of discussion about energy and climate, I think it's now more of a discussion about energy, climate, and security, and a real will is coming up to make the investments, the the significant costs that are going to come out of people's pockets if you want to redo the grid or or the the way the grid is energized these are large dollar long time investments and it does seem that we're right in the heart of the time that people are going to have the will uh, to just kind of swallow the swallow the cost and make it happen and and I suspect that Europe might be a little bit ahead of us uh, as in North America, just because of the circumstances in Europe are different than they are in North America in regards to security and, and access to supply. Yeah, I definitely agree. And there's another thing. I mean, it, it's the, the economic situation. It's been, we've been growing and growing our economy. It's uh, COVID did not seem to have any impact. And that's why our grids, for example, our electricity grids are all uh, congested. They're, they're full. There's no transport capacity available. So also, we're about to do very large investments on the electricity grid. And while you're at it, you might as well make it so that more people can go all electric, you know, that you have enough electric, uh, electric capacity to support those kind of developments. So I think that's another reason that uh, the time is right for a uh, yeah, perfect storm in that way for uh, the energy transition. And we've talked about the the challenges around the new infrastructure required in one of our previous episodes, and and especially when you're dealing with you know well established uh, housing and and residency, uh, it's easier to do when you're doing new builds, which you can do a little more in Canada than you can in Europe, perhaps. Uh, maybe a question for the both of you guys, uh, for Lauren and for for, for Leonie. Uh, first for Leonie, uh, just. Where do you see as the next steps kind of in the evolution of this legal precedent and, and what do you anticipate maybe coming to the Dutch courts in the future and, and learn for you beyond the implications of what this means for Shell here in Canada, which obviously is something we watch closely here with their presence. But do you think this is a persuasive decision? Will it hold, hold water in Canadian courts or do you anticipate similar challenges here? But maybe, Leona, you can start us off. Yeah, I think um, the first step is uh, like the Friends of the Earth sent this letter to the 29, to 29 companies and they have to make a climate plan. So I think it all depends whether or not they're going to 
follow up on the invitation to make such a climate plan because if they all do there will be no more litigation well not for them at least but if they don't i definitely expect that they will go to they'll take some of those companies to court again so i think this is just the beginning of their uh their mission to really, uh, you know, persuade all uh, the big polluters to start with to change the, their ways and to cut the cut on emissions. I think so. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's another impetus, but there's already a, a bunch of them. And I would say that the local producers um, have been focused on ESG metrics for quite some time. I think, and with recent developments in Europe, that has uh, increased further, which is there's been a lot of promotion of Alberta, in particular, Alberta Energy as being sort of the most um, cognizant of ESG metrics. And I think this is sort of another uh, item to add to that list of reasons why uh, significant work's being done for emissions reductions, which there's been significant progress made over the last several years about reducing the uh, emissions for upstream emissions, at least for uh, oil sands production in Canada. And I think this is just another thing that's going to be stacked on top of that, which, um, you know, I, I don't as getting back to our carrots and sticks, this is a stick, uh, unlike some of the carrots that are out there to try and get greener. And is it a stick that's needed? Uh, I, I'm not sure how much it's needed, but it's certainly, I think, one that's going to be uh, made note of and will just be that further uh, push to drive along for trying to get a better uh, energy balance and a reduced overall emissions intensity Um so I think that that's going to be the result of this all is there's just one more reason to start with the transition. And and as I say, I, I think the real driver behind this isn't so much, you know, the will of the public or anybody in the community. It's okay, well, let's do this in a economically responsible way so that we can ensure that energy costs don't have this significant negative impact on people's day-to-day transportation needs, their food needs, their heating needs. These are all things that are going to happen but it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And I think that this will just help continue to propel us down the path we are already moving down. Lauren, I know it's obviously not a precedent for Canadian for the Canadian legal system, but but often uh, you know judgments like this around the world are brought in to to, to bolster a case. Uh, what do you see the impacts? Is do you think courts here in Canada will be looking at this Dutch decision? I think they will. Um, the question becomes to what end it may be used. Uh, I am not on the litigation side of the business, and I'm thankful for that many days. Uh, <laughs> but I do have partners that I work with that I discuss these issues with. And I, I think they are, as are people on all sides of the issue, looking at this and seeing how does this stack in with regulatory requirements that we have through, if you want to take the Canada Energy, Energy Regulator and the changes that were introduced in Canada under Bill C-69, if, you know, from that regulatory perspective, current incentivization plans and we could have those be provincial things like the the uh, strategy that Alberta released um, I believe that was now time comes together but I believe that was the fall late summer of 2020 in respect of sort of what I termed at the time as more of a refocus or return to uh, our natural gas resources uh, federal incentivization and I think all these things are going to be just brought together from um, regulatory, uh, legislative, and uh, common law perspectives as to how uh, people are going to continue to leverage change. And But again, I think it's change that's, that's willingly undertaken. It's just to be responsibly undertaking in that we've already got inflation running high, and that has a direct impact on the cost of living for, for everyone on a day-to-day basis. 
You know, it's, uh, it seems that uh, this ruling is really kind of the, the tip of the iceberg, if you will. It's just, uh, it's really going to start. And it sounds like things are going to happen quickly in a lot of jurisdictions uh, in terms of these kind of rulings, or at least attempts uh, to, to achieve these kinds of ruling uh, in the very near future. So it's, it's been a great discussion. Yeah. Thank you very much for your Thank time. You, I re- really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Laura uh, and Jason. And that's the end of our third episode, folks. Jason and I want to give another huge thank you to Leona for taking the time to chat with us today and provide her perspective on environmental litigation. It'll certainly be interesting to see what this ruling means for Canada and other emissions producing industries as we continue to seek ways to lower emissions and mitigate climate change. I also want to say thank you to the team working behind the scenes with Anne Derby and Ian Mondro from Galling and Catherine Moore, Kayla Duty, and Zoe Kirstead from Navigator. Next week is our series finale and it'll be an episode you don't want to miss. Thanks for listening.